It's derby time. Come on, tell your friends. We'll go to many distant lands. With Dan the coach and Jackie the skater, the fun will never end. It's derby time. Welcome to the Power Through the Fourth Whistle Roller Derby Podcast. This is Jackie Bauer. Thank you for joining me today on the path to becoming better athletes, teammates, leaders, and human beings. Welcome back to another episode of Power Through the Fourth Whistle Roller Derby Podcast. I got a lot of great feedback from people after last episode. Thank you very much. I'm really glad that you like this story format because it makes me really optimistic that we can do more episodes like this and branch out into other sports. I think sometimes we get so focused on roller derby we forget other sports exist. <laughs> and there's actually so much to learn from what athletes and coaches are doing in many different sports that's incredibly relatable to what we're doing. So I would like an opportunity to explore that more. And I hope you'll come on that journey with me. Today, we pick up where we left off last week. So if you didn't hear last week's episode, please go listen to that one first. It's such a good story. And I want you to hear all the pieces, all right? But it's the story of the Chicago Bulls, who are coached by Phil Jackson, led by player Michael Jordan, as well as Scottie Pippen and many other phenomenal athletes. And they had just won their first championship ever. It was a really, really big moment for everyone involved. But like I said last week, Phil Jackson said about it, you're only a success at the moment you perform the success. You have to do it again. And another basketball coach, John Wooden, said being able to repeat takes character. Winning can change you. Anyone in Derby knows this as well. If you if you had like a really, really hot season, it might change how your team approaches the next season. And that's no different here. Uh, Michael Jordan said that success turns we's back into me's. And sure enough, they had some difficulty getting back in sync as egos began to flare the next year. Suddenly, there was friction between teammates. For example, Michael Jordan skipped the White House celebration. He just needed some time, and other people didn't understand that. Also, a book came out called The Jordan Rules by Sam Smith, and that created problems between teammates and with the manager of the team, Jerry Krause, because everyone was wondering, well, who spilled the beans gave the juicy gossip for this book. So there was a loss of trust between individuals that they had to work through. And Coach Phil Jackson advised the team, tune out these distractions. Let's focus on winning our second championship. He worked on making practice a sanctuary. He limited access for media and family. He really wanted practice to be a safe space where the team could focus on working together. Right away, I just want to say, what has your practice space been like in the past? Can anyone come in and out? 
is it focused just on practice time or are people bringing in league business and other stuff at the same time? What do you do to make practice a safe space where people can really just dig in and focus on the task at hand? When playoffs came around, the Bulls flew through Miami in three games, and then they faced the New York Knicks, who really tried to outmuscle the Bulls, and Scottie Pippen severely sprained his ankle. This series level of physicality and theatrics and complaining about officiating is pretty much compared to like WWE style wrestling. And in the final game, their opponent, Xavier McDaniel, was pushing around the still recovering Scottie Pippen. And Michael Jordan came to his teammates' defense and he stared down this competitor. And uh, some some words were exchanged, some some F-words, and double technical fouls were awarded, which, you know, that's not great. But the important thing about this moment was Michael Jordan was standing with and standing up for his teammate. And the Bulls won that series. I actually found a YouTube clip of this moment, and I'm going to put it in the show notes and also the the transcribed episode later. <laughs> so then... They went through Cleveland, and then the Bulls faced Portland in their second championship finals, the Portland Trailblazers. And Trailblazer Clyde Drexler had been compared to Michael Jordan in the press. And so MJ's going to use that to fuel him in this series. He wanted to show the world, this other player is not even in my league. And another Trailblazer, Danny Ang, later said, It was like watching an assassin who comes to kill you and then cut your heart out. (laughs) Just completely brutal. The Bulls won the first game in Chicago, lost the second game in overtime, and Phil Jackson flew the team out early for the next game and gave them rest instead of practice. And that paid off because then the Bulls led the series. They really wanted to finish off Portland in Game 6. They did not want it to go to a Game 7 because Game 7, anything can happen. It's really unpredictable. But Michael Jordan was trying to take over the game and he was starting to not fit and play within the system. So Tex Winter insisted, like, let's take him out early for a rest. And they left him out. Michael Jordan was upset at not being put out immediately at the beginning of the fourth quarter like normal. But Phil really liked how the backup players were playing. He liked their energy, and the Blazers were baffled at how to defend them because they hadn't faced them as much throughout the game. And the backup group managed to shrink the Blazers' lead to five points. Then the starters returned with fresh energy, and MJ scored 12 of his 33 points in the fourth quarter at the most important time, and Scottie Pippen also made some really crucial shots. And the Bulls went on a 14-2 run at the start of that quarter. It was the biggest fourth quarter comeback in finals history. That helped the team finish 97-93. to And it was another joyous celebration as the Bulls won their second championship. Phil Jackson later said about the experience, Winning back-to-back championships was the mark of a great team. But what pleased me even more was we'd had to navigate so many unexpected twists and turns to get there and called the journey an odyssey. In the summer of 1992, the Olympics happened. 
and the formation of the Dream Team, this epic basketball team with so many amazing players on it. And there was this really fun story of at a scrimmage practice for this team, Jordan's team was down eight points and there was some trash talking between between people. Charles Barkley and Magic Johnson made a joke that, hey, Michael, you better better turn into Air Jordan or you're going to get blown out. And he did. Um, he scored every possession, every time down the court. And it wasn't long until his team was up by two. Everybody was stunned by what had just happened. And on the bus on the way back, it was like super quiet, a little bit awkward. Until Magic finally said to Charles, guess we shouldn't have pissed the man off. <laughs> and everybody laughed and said, oh, it's the best practice ever. But that's just how it was. Um, Michael wasn't just competitive in basketball, though. He was competitive in everything, golf, cards, anything. He didn't just want to beat you. He he basically wanted to, to step on your neck and, and grind. Just ruthless competitor. And an important shift happened during the Olympics where Michael Jordan realized Scottie Pippen, my teammate, Scottie Pippen, is the best all-around player on the best basketball team ever assembled at the Olympics. And he even outshone Michael during several games. And so with this newfound information, he came back with just so much more appreciation and respect for his teammate. And while the team wasn't technically allowed to name a third captain, they unofficially made Scotty a captain. And the team had a style of open leadership. They were letting players lead the team from within. The coach would assert himself at practice to lead the vision and then step back and let the players take the lead in games. And to do that, he had to rely on his team leaders. He believed that the group leads and the leader follows. But he also knew leadership had to have structure. Uh, the coach knew pecking order is very important and uncertainty makes players anxious. I have witnessed this on so many occasions in my personal experience. When you don't really know what's going on or who's in charge and doesn't feel like anybody is, you just get kind of antsy, a little bit like, what's going on, folks? Um, <laughs> and luckily, the Bulls had never had to doubt who was top dog on their team because they've got Michael Jordan. He makes it super obvious. But Phil had the team do an exercise called social bullseye so he could understand how they felt they related to the team. It's basically um, you have a piece of paper and you have circles on it like a bullseye, like a really small one and then some bigger ones. And you kind of just put yourself as a dot where you think you are. For example, one of the players put himself like way outside the circle because he didn't feel like he got enough playing time. He didn't really feel like he was a part of the team. And that was surprising information to the coach. He didn't realize that that player felt like that. And Michael Jordan saw it as, okay, Phil is in the center. Then I'm on the next circle. And then Scotty's on the next circle. He saw like each player as their own circle. And this was like a metaphor to understand how he needed to relate to the different personalities, bring it all back to the center, bring it all back to Phil so that they could be a team. And I really love this. Uh, Phil Jackson as a coach really encouraged a journey of self-exploration for his players. 
I know we didn't all come to roller derby to get into a journey of self-exploration and you can't force anyone to do that, but I think it's fascinating and that's why it's kind of come up in so many episodes. That's why I've read so many books on the subject. I think it's really interesting to get that introspection because then you never know what it's going to unlock. And to encourage this in the Chicago Bulls, Phil Jackson would take them on a long road trip each November up the West Coast, which sounds lovely. I, I kind of want to go on this vacation. And he would give each player a book to read that fits their personality. He didn't really worry about whether or not the players read the books. Like, this isn't a homework assignment per se. But what was most important to him is he wanted them to know he cared about each and every one of them as individuals enough to spend the time to search for a book that might have special meaning for each person. Um, I think Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance was one of them, which is a book I've mentioned before on this podcast that I particularly enjoy. Uh, I, I just thought that was just, just a really cool, thoughtful coaching moment. After winning two championships, the biggest enemy this season was boredom. Uh, so he had to find ways to mix up practice. And this is another creative way to coach. He would bring in guests to teach yoga, tai chi, different types of nutritionists. He even, this is kind of weird, he brought in an undercover detective and also a prison warden at one point just because he wanted to show new ways of thinking about difficult problems. Like this wasn't really about the sport of basketball per se, so much as problem solving. Just getting everyone to think about problem solving in a new way by coming at it from a different perspective. He wanted to get all of his athletes' minds engaged as much as possible and make this experience of training for the sport feel special. So it just makes me wonder, like, what ways could we be making our training a little bit more special. Has your team done anything super creative? If so, like, I would actually love it if you would write in and tell me about it because I find that super, super interesting. Now, you might remember back in episode 97, I talked about self-actualization. And so does Phil Jackson in his book, 11 Rings, which is the source material for this episode, along with The Last Dance, which is now available on Netflix. You can go watch it right now. <laughs> he describes the meaning of self-actualization as full use of your talent and potential. Oh, I've already done a whole episode about this, but I do want to dip into this just a little bit because I really like some of these things here. It's about your ability to be spontaneous and creative and encourages greater acceptance of yourself and others. You focus on problem solving over ego gratification. And he listed eight steps to self-actualization, and I think they're interesting enough to go over. Number one, experience life vividly with total absorption. That means be here now, right here, right now, in the present moment. Number two, make choices that foster growth, not fear. I like to think about this in terms of learning. When you're learning a new skill, when you're deciding how to teach something to somebody else. And when I read these words, I couldn't help but think about it in terms of what we've been trying to do to change ourselves and our leagues in terms of diversity, inclusion, and anti-racism. 
uh, a listener wrote in this week to talk about a team that the person felt that the team was trying to appear anti-racist more than actively practice doing things that would, you know, matter and do something really important for the team. And um, I think that's made out of fear, a fear of how the league will appear from the outside. If you're more concerned with appearances, then you're missing out on the chance to do meaningful work that will foster real growth in your league. So just something to think about. Are you more concerned about how things look or how things are going to be? Because things could be really amazing if you do the work. Number three, become in tune with your inner nature and act in concert with who you really are. I talked about this a lot in the episode on being relentless, like getting in touch with who you are and just letting that out, letting that shine. Number four, be honest with yourself and take responsibility for what you say and do. Number five, identify your ego defenses and find courage to give them up. Both of those, I also can't help but think about practicing anti-racism. Number seven, create an ongoing process for realizing full potential and do the work to realize your vision. And number eight, foster conditions to have peak experiences and moments of ecstasy. I really like that. It's the idea of let's just not go through a routine and do the same things we always do. What could we be doing? What conditions could we create that could make moments really special and memorable in our lives? I mean, what do you want to look back on after you're you're done with your sport experience, right? I hope that you will have these moments of ecstasy, these peak experiences to look back on and think about fondly. So that way you can just think expansively about life in general and get out of your own way and let your true nature express itself. Anyway, that's my little side journey into self-actualization. Let's go back to the Bulls because in the 1992 to 1993 seasons, they met the New York Knicks and Patrick Ewing in the playoffs. The Bulls lost the first two games and John Stark ended the second game by going airborne over MJ and Horace Grant with a big dunk with 47 seconds left. It was later called the exclamation mark by their team's coach. Epic. And during this series, the media was coming after Michael Jordan, accusing him of having a gambling problem because earlier in the day before game two, he had been in Atlantic City. And also a book came out around this time written by someone who MJ had owed a gambling debt MJ's father said, you know, Michael doesn't have a gambling problem. He has a competitiveness problem. But Michael Jordan is a celebrity known all over the world. And as like one of the most famous people in the entire world, he could barely leave his hotel room. He was in the spotlight at all times, and it was very difficult to unwind, and he had to find ways to do that. And in dealing with this this backlash from media this sentiment this like negative idea about his identity he just took everything he was feeling and he put it into his gameplay and he left it on the court the team also like rallied around him and took this as a reason to focus and do anything to win and michael jordan led the team through the next four wins in a row to finish the new york knicks 
Next was Charles Barkley of the Phoenix Suns, who was the MVP that season. So Michael Jordan used that to motivate himself playing. Like, oh, okay, this person's the MVP. Probably deserves it, but I'm just going to take that personally and let that fuel me in this series. The Bulls took the first two games. The Suns took game three in triple overtime. And then the Bulls took game four, where Jordan had 55 of the team's 111 points. Like, literally half the points. And then the Suns came back in game five. And Michael spoke to the team on the plane before leaving and said, I'm only bringing one suit. We are only playing one more game. He was not going to let them lose game six. In the fourth quarter, the first score by anyone who wasn't named Michael Jordan was a three-pointer from John Paxson, who was not supposed to receive the ball. It was a pass from Michael that led to a pass from Scotty that led to a pass from Horace Grant that led to the three-point shot by John Paxson. Once again, passing the ball was the key to finishing the series and earning the third championship. It was one of the greatest moments in finals history. The Bulls were only the third team in history to win three in a row, and the players had turned to each other for strength. This seems like a perfect moment to take a quick break, and when I come back, I will tell you about the second series of championships. Roller Derby Athletics provides high-level coaching to derby athletes worldwide. They've been the leaders in home-based roller derby cross-training for over seven years. They offer team training plans to support your league. RDA wants to help teams keep working together toward their goals. Membership is now open year-round, so you have access whenever you need it. You can sign up for the Essential Plan, which is great if you prefer to do workout plans on your own, at your own pace. You can choose from a huge library of derby-specific workouts. If you get stuck, there are instructional videos that can help you understand understand the exact moves you need to get maximum results. There's also the MVP plan, which is perfect for the Derby athlete who enjoys additional coaching. This plan is personalized to your needs and can help you reach your goals a lot quicker with the help of RDA's Skater Success Coaches. You can follow the workout calendar and drag and drop it to fit your schedule and get access to all the boot camps and group fitness challenges for free. My favorite group challenge is Suns Out, Funs Out because that one helped me get to my first pull-up ever. And I love that the workouts don't take up a ton of your time. They're short and effective. Roller Derby Athletics offers a ton of derby-specific workouts that will help you to be stronger and faster on the track. And it's all provided to you in the palm of your hand in an easy-to-use app. RDA wants to keep everyone safe, strong, and unstoppable. Get started on your fitness journey today. Visit rollerderbyathletics.com plans to learn more. And we're back. After the first three championships for the Chicago Bulls, Michael Jordan had been thinking about retiring. And then a major hardship happened. Uh, Two thieves murdered his father in August that year. And he decided to get away from it all and start over by taking up baseball. The last time he had played baseball was high school, but... He attacked his training tenaciously because he's Michael Jordan, and he remade his body for the sport with the help of his trainer, Tim Grover, who wrote Relentless that we talked about two episodes ago. He would come early and stay late and listen to anyone who would coach him. His prospects even started looking good for 
joining a new sport. MJ went to the 1993 ring ceremony and he told the crowd he would always be a Chicago Bulls fan and support his teammates. And then the season opening game that followed that ceremony was the worst in franchise history. While he was sitting in the front row, oh, they set the record for the least points in a period, six, the least points in a half, 25, and the least points in a game, 71, in that building. Phil Jackson, the coach, thought of it as a learning experience because what better way for the players to learn that Michael Jordan could no longer bail them out, right? <laughs> he brought in sports psychologist George Mumford, who talked about dealing with crisis. When you're in a crisis, you can focus on the danger or the opportunity. You can make a crisis work for you. This was a chance to create a new identity for the team that could be stronger than before. He taught the team mindfulness meditation training to better read and react on the floor, but also to help with focus and selflessness. Players who are stars on their college teams struggle to adapt in the NBA, but if you change your mindset to staying in the present, not thinking about the past or the future, you can ask yourself, what does the team need? How can I change to help the team? This is probably something all of us have gone through at some point or another, losing uh, one or more crucial players that really made up our team and trying to figure out what now, what is the team now? And I like this idea of just reimagining what the team could be and that it could actually be a really positive thing if you change how you look at the problem. And Scottie Pippen was the leader while Michael Jordan was away. He said they had nobody yelling at them. They got up plenty of shots because Scottie Pippen was always more of a facilitator than a scorer. And so the triangle offense was running perfectly as he was making sure the ball was getting distributed everywhere. And the team was run by committee, not an overlord. And there were new players on the team, like Tony Kukoc and Steve Kerr. Then, in a pivotal moment in the Eastern Conference semifinals, the team only had time to run one more play. Phil Jackson set up a play for Scotty to inbound the ball to Tony Kukoc for the shot. Scotty thought he should be the one taking the shot and declined to go back into the game, to everyone's shock because it seemed really out of character for him. Phil Jackson addressed the team after that this is something they never thought would happen, that anyone would just stop playing. And teammate Bill Cartwright, co-captain, couldn't believe Scotty quit on them and made a speech and was in tears. He said, like, look, Scotty, that was BS. After all we've been through on this team, this is our chance to do it on our own without Michael. And you blow it with your selfishness? I've never been so disappointed in my whole life. And Scotty apologized to the team and they moved on. Phil didn't go after Scotty. He wanted the players to solve the problem together. The Bulls went all the way to Game 7 with the New York Knicks that year and lost. They had actually been close to making it without Jordan, but they fell short, and it was their first time ending the season without TV cameras in years. Phil said to the team, Losing is as much a part of the game as winning. Today they beat us, but we were not defeated. 
It was a really difficult summer for the Chicago Bulls with retirements and transfers. Scotty heard rumors about himself being traded from reporters, which was pretty upsetting. And the new roster had a lack of competitive spirit. Few of the championship players were even left. Then a baseball strike made Michael Jordan decide to come back to basketball with a press release that simply said, I'm back. If he had stuck with it, he probably could have succeeded. But after baseball, he was even more committed and goal-oriented to winning a championship. It had been 21 months since he had last played in the NBA, and he decided to play under number 45 for a new start, which was his high school number. Michael was criticized for not looking so great in his first game back, and to make up for it, In his second game, he put up 55 points in Madison Square Garden. That was cool and all, but afterwards, Michael went to Phil's office and said, you have to tell the players that they can't expect me to do what I did in New York every night. In our next game, I want them to get up and get going and play as a team. So this was a new Michael Jordan, because in the past, he would have been totally psyched about his performance and tried to do it again in the next game. But he had come back with a different perspective after going to baseball. He had liked bonding with other players, and he really wasn't interested in going solo as much anymore. He wanted that team harmony that had made the Bulls champions in the past. When the Bulls went up against the Orlando Magic, at the end of Game 1, the ball was stolen from Michael Jordan. And then, when he had the chance to put up the game-winning shot, he threw it away. He was pretty dejected and upset after the game, and Phil told him, like, hey, Don't worry about it. You're our guy. After that, Jordan decided number 45 is unlucky, (laughs) and he switched back to 23. He came back with a vengeance, and he played really well, but he was exhausted throughout the series because he was in baseball shape, not basketball shape. They eventually lost in game six. Michael Jordan hated losing, and he hated losing to his former teammate, Horace Grant. He let that fuel him for planning the next season. Instead of taking time off during the offseason like normal, he told his trainer, Tim Grover, he wanted to see him the very next day after losing to the Magic, and he got to work. He said, if people take time out of their days to come watch me on TV, I have an obligation to give the fans my best all the time, and he had to reconstruct his body again to do that. It was a complicated summer, though, because he also filmed Space Jam while he was training all summer. He would work out during breaks, and then every night he would play against the best players in the NBA. He would just invite them over because they had built him a court, and this also let him scout the competition. So he'd be filming all day and then play three hours with all these really great young players and then more weightlifting and then film again really early the next morning. But... He got to feed off this energy, energy of these new young players. And losing ended up being great for Michael Jordan because it gave him something to work for and fight for again. The 1995-1996 to team, some consider it the greatest basketball team ever assembled. Dennis Rodman had now joined the team. They needed a a rebounder, a defensive stopper, and that was what he really excelled at. And he formed a great teamwork relationship with Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. And while he had this kind of 
larger than life persona. Inside, he was actually a quiet player who worked hard and played hard. He played with joy. Phil described it as like a boy learning to fly, which, oh my gosh, that's so wholesome. Phil Jackson adjusted his game coaching style to be as quiet and restrained as possible because he saw the effect he would have on Dennis. Like if Phil was agitated and arguing with refs, it seemed to give Dennis Rodman license to do the same and he could get in trouble, get thrown out of games. And so he adjusted that. I know that in roller derby, some coaches feel like they have to be super loud and screamy from the sidelines at officials or at their own team but I think regardless of whatever style you have as a coach it's important to think about what impact your style has on your players like is it helpful is it sometimes harmful it's just something to think about like what effect do you have on the players and if you could make some adjustments would that be easier and better for your team. When Michael had arrived back in 1995, he didn't know most of the players and he didn't know how to get in sync with the team. And it wasn't until he get in, got into like a literal fist fight with Steve Kerr at practice that he realized he needed to get to know his teammates a lot better. His leadership style had always been leading by example, but after the loss to the Orlando Magic, he decided he needed to do something dramatically different to motivate this team. And after the fight, he also saw he needed to respect his teammates. And he needed to respect what he was trying to accomplish more, understand what it was going to take. So Phil got him more involved with the sports psychologist. And he had been keeping his teammates at a distance because he couldn't go out with pub- in public with them and just hang out. Uh, which made developing strong relationships really challenging. So he had to work harder on meeting people where they are and then leading them where you want them to go instead of just being frustrated and just trying to will them to your level. Isn't that something you've seen a lot? I find this so relatable. Um, Sometimes you just want people to get up to your level or you want people to get to a certain place, but you do have to meet people where they are first. Otherwise, they're not going to come with you. Michael Jordan had to understand what made each teammate tick so he could work with them more productively. Everyone's different. Everyone has something to offer on your team. And it's your job as a leader to find out what that is. And he took his natural ability to see things, to read things on the court, and he used it to relate to other people better. He learned like sometimes you have to be physical in relating, like maybe demonstrating something with your body or with Scotty, you had to be present. Like if you took a day off, he'd take a day off with Dennis. You needed to be emotional. You couldn't yell at Dennis Rodman. You had to find a way to get into his world for a few seconds so he could understand what you were trying to communicate. Some people were verbal. You could straight up yell at Scott Burrell and he'd get it, I guess. (laughs) And everyone took this opportunity to focus on roles. Scotty Pippen was the chief orchestrator of the action. Michael Jordan would step up and deal the decisive blows in a game. Ron Harper was now a multi-purpose guard and more of a defensive player instead of a scorer because that's what the team needed. And Dennis Rodman exceeded all expectations on defense with his 
just wild enthusiasm for hustling loose balls and and pulling down rebounds. The team actually went after the record for the most wins in a season, 72 to 10. Gosh, basketball has a lot of games. So many games. The Bulls swept Miami. They beat the Knicks 4 to 1, and then Michael Jordan got to rematch against the Orlando Magic, which he had been thinking about all year, and they did end up sweeping them. <laughs> Next, versus the Seattle Supersonics, it was viewed as the greatest mismatch in finals history. The Bulls took the first three games, and it looked like it was going to be a sweep again, but the Sonics came back in Game 4, led by Gary Payton, whose game plan was just tire out Michael Jordan. He looks tired. I'm going to tire him out. So Gary Payton outplayed Michael Jordan for Games 4 and 5. But there was another factor taking place at the same time. Michael Jordan had other things on his mind because the championship game took place on Father's Day. His dad had always been right next to him for every championship, and he had the chance to win another, but he had to do it without his father. And at one point, the Bulls had a 15-point lead, and it was described as like putting on a clinic. In Game 6, the Bulls finished 87 to 75 and Michael Jordan held it together to finish the game strong but then he he cried on the locker room floor he was completely overcome by emotion and he dedicated the game to his father oh my god I can't (laughs) I can't even watch that scene without losing it and and just talking about it right now is is making me completely emotional Whew. okay Let's take another quick break, and when I come back, I will finish out the story of The Last Dance. This episode is brought to you by Bout Betty's, the only roller derby subscription service in the world. They offer a range of levels, so you're sure to find a pack that fits in your budget. So whether you're wanting derby enamel pins, comfy athleisure clothes, or sturdy workout apparel, they have you covered. As for me, I super love the apparel. You may have noticed how often I wear it when I make videos for our Facebook page. The leggings, shorts, and sports bras are amazing. The material is ridiculously silky, smooth, and soft. The first time I pulled on my leggings, I could not stop touching my legs and asking friends to touch my legs so they could feel the magic that is this material. And it's so darn cute. There's mermaids, dinosaurs, cats, and many fun new designs coming your way. Whether you're the track, skate park, gym, or grocery store, you will turn heads and bring joy to those you meet. They offer sizes small through 3X and leggings are bout tested and derby durable. Subscribe today using our podcast promo code POWER10 for 10% off your first pack at boutbetties.com. It's like derby Christmas every single month and yes, they do ship internationally. we're back. I couldn't find as much information about the 1997 season, so let's just skip right ahead to the finals. It was the Bulls versus the Utah Jazz, and it was the first time to the finals for the Jazz. For this series, Michael Jordan's motivating factor was Carl Malone getting MVP that year. The Jazz was a very good team that season and had players that were actually a bad matchup for the Chicago Bulls. Carl Malone's nickname was the mailman. And there was this moment in the first game after Malone was fouled near the end of the game and he's approaching the free throw line and Scottie Pippen whispered to him, 
mailman doesn't deliver on Sundays. Malone missed the first shot, and the second bounced off the rim into Jordan's hands. Michael Jordan had remembered Brian Russell, who was guarding him from a playful comment while Michael Jordan had been retired, so he was on Michael Jordan's list, and he knew how that player moved and faked him out to make an amazing game-winning shot. Game two was not particularly close, and the Bulls blew out the Jazz, and in game three, Utah comes back. In game four, John Stockton throws the best pass ever to Carl Malone, and now the series is tied two to two. After the game, this is a fun little detail, the Bulls found out that their equipment manager had accidentally served the team Gator Load instead of Gator Aid, and that meant each player had ingested the equivalent to 20 baked potatoes. Holy moly, can you imagine? Just like, I'm gonna play basketball now. <laughs> Wee! <laughs> game five. It's kind of a famous game in NBA history. It's known as the flu game. The night before game five, Michael Jordan was hungry and the only place open was a pizza place. And it was a little weird because five people delivered the pizza. They just assumed people wanted to get a peek at him or something. But he got food poisoning from the pizza and threw up all night. He stayed in bed all day. He couldn't eat anything else and had to get an IV just to get fluids into his body. And Phil Jackson asked Michael Jordan, what do you want to do? And MJ wanted to try, even if it was, if even if he'd only be used as a decoy or a distraction. And Utah got the quick start and a 10 point lead in the first quarter. And every time the whistle blew for a timeout, Michael Jordan was exhausted on the bench with just like a towel over his head. But he looked for something, something deep down inside himself and somehow just kept playing. He didn't just play. He flipped a switch and he played like a person possessed, like making amazing shots and carrying the team. And Scottie Pippen orchestrated the action as much as possible so that MJ wouldn't have to worry about defense as much and just set him up for big shot after big shot. And somehow MJ played 44 minutes and scored 38 points. He put his arms around Scottie Pippen after the game and was practically carried to the bench by his teammate. And no matter how sick he was, he was still the best player in the world. The coach of the Jazz, Jerry Sloan, didn't even know Jordan was sick. It's kind of this amazing moment when you're watching The Last Dance. The win-at-all-costs personality that Michael Jordan has got him through this. I don't know if you've ever, like, scrimmaged when you've had, like, you're a little bit under the weather or you've played a game that way or, like, you're fighting through something. But sometimes, sometimes it just makes you dial in that much more. And you can overcome whatever it is you're dealing with and it <laughs> it's so hard to do but it's amazing that he could do that game six utah jazz versus chicago bulls jordan was feeling much better after the flu game and steve kerr was a role player on his team that got maybe five shots a game so every shot was important he was a perfectionist very hard on himself the game was tied 86 each with 28 seconds left. 
Michael Jordan knew Utah had a plan for the scenario where they could double team him. John Stockton would try to come steal the ball from him. And so MJ mumbled to Steve during the timeout, like, be ready. And Steve called back, yeah, I'll be ready. (laughs) Kerr was open and he made the game winning shot. And then the game ended with a dunk from Tony Kukoc. MJ was named the MVP, but he asked to share it with Scottie Pippen because he thought his teammate deserved it just as much as him. He wanted the trophy, but Scottie could have the car. There was confetti everywhere. And then later on at the championship rally, Steve Kerr made a joke about like, oh, you know, Michael, you know, he fails so many of those last minute shots. So I just had to bail him out. And <laughs> I love that. It's so funny. Finally, here we are, The Last Dance, the 1998 season. In his book, Phil Jackson talks a bit about the enemy's gift. And I think that this is so interesting, how struggles with others can teach you things about yourself that you couldn't learn any other way. Battling with enemies can help you develop greater compassion and tolerance of others. And to develop compassion and patience, Sometimes you need someone that willfully hurts you so you can practice these things and that these interactions test our inner strength. And even though Jerry Krause, the manager, was not technically his enemy, he just described this as this contentious relationship um, helped teach him some things about himself. So sometimes in your league, you might really, um, you know, you and another person just have a lot of trouble, like you rub each other the wrong way. But it's interesting how sometimes these relationships end up making you develop more and grow. So it's just an interesting way to look at things when you have someone that you you struggle to see eye to eye with. Coming into the 1998 season, Scottie Pippen was dealing with recovery from a foot injury. He was out for several months and without Scotty to direct the action, the team was struggling to find their rhythm, and they were especially having difficulty finishing close games. MJ kept looking for someone to help him. The team couldn't make up for Scotty's absence, and MJ, trying to do everything, was mentally and emotionally exhausted. He hated losing and vowed that the team wouldn't lose anymore after a bad start to the season that left them eighth in their division. MJ asked Dennis Rodman to help leading and to please not get technicals or get thrown out of games. Like, I need you here with me. I need you to help me lead. And then when Scotty returned in January, the team came together again and eventually somehow tied for the best game win record in the league that year with the Utah Jazz. Before playoffs, Phil Jackson brought everyone together and Each player wrote down what the season meant to them and read it to the group. And then they burned their words in a coffee can. This was a ritual to deal with loss. Michael Jordan wrote a poem. And after he read it, he said that he hoped that their bond would last forever and added, no one knows what the future holds, but let's finish this right. The Bulls had an easy win in game one against the Charlotte Hornets. Former teammate B.J. Armstrong used his Bulls knowledge and had a big moment at the end of Game 2 in the series, securing a five-point lead with 17 seconds left, and he celebrated in the faces of his former teammates and coach. Oh boy, Michael Jordan knew 
he was supposed to be dominating this player. And from that time on, uh, he did. He excelled at constructing reasons to keep him going and uh, finding that game within a game to challenge him. Uh, and so the next night, Michael Jordan went after BJ Armstrong and won game three decisively, said BJ had woken him up. <laughs> The 1998 Eastern Conference Finals were versus the Indiana Pacers and Reggie Miller. I wasn't super into sports when I was younger, but I feel like I do remember this series. I remember really enjoying watching Reggie Miller. And Reggie Miller looked at this challenge as an opportunity to retire Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan and Reggie Miller had an interesting relationship with trash talk. It was also Larry Bird's first year coaching as head coach of the Pacers. And Michael Jordan had received his fifth NBA MVP award. And one of my favorite moments from this series, uh, watching like the clips from it, was from game two where Michael Jordan is dribbling. He like slips and falls towards the ground and somehow recovers, continuing to dribble the whole time. It's just amazing. He had 41 points in game two and the Bulls led the series two to zero after winning both games in Chicago. But game three was a different story in Indiana with crazy fans and Reggie Miller's insane confidence giving him the ability to score from anywhere on the court. Indiana won game three by two points. Michael Jordan called it a bump in the road. Game four was intense. Michael Jordan even had a cut on his head and was bleeding, and the ending was a, a one-point game with six seconds left. After the ball was passed in, Pippen was fouled. He had had a great game, not as great at the free throw line, and he missed both shots. Reggie Miller saw an opportunity and made one of the most clutch shots of all time after lightly shoving Michael Jordan out of the way. There was still the teeniest bit of time left on the clock and everyone knew where the ball would go for Chicago and Michael Jordan had a chance to fire back with his own clutch shot and it really looked like it was going in but spun out at the last second. Oh... Then the teams ended up splitting games five and six, and it went to a game seven where anything can happen. And before game seven, Phil said to the players, we could lose this game, but what's important is playing with the right kind of effort and not being overtaken by a fear of losing. Michael Jordan looked everyone dead in the eye in a team huddle and said, we are not going to lose this game. There was a lovely side story about this game about one of Michael Jordan's security guards, this wonderful man named Gus, uh, who had cancer and who had been fighting cancer. And he had come back for this game after going through his chemo. And MJ wanted to win this game for Gus. And anytime it goes to a game seven in the NBA, it's going to go to wh whoever wants it more. The Pacers came out on fire and Chicago had to claw their way back in. Michael Jordan only hit nine for 25 starting out, but made up for it by driving deliberately for the basket and drawing fouls, which turned into a total of 28 super hard earned points, 10 of which came from free throws alone. Plus he had nine rebounds and eight assists and his drive was contagious. The team had a lower percentage of shots going into the basket that game, like 38.2%. But they out-rebounded the Pacers 50-34 to 34 
which gave them more chances to score. And the Bulls ended up winning that game by five points. And MJ snatched the game-winning ball for Gus. Afterwards, Michael Jordan said, It's about heart. And I think you saw a lot of heart out there on the basketball court. It was a great effort. It truly is a championship team in terms of finding ways to win and making it happen. Next, the Bulls had to face the Utah Jazz, who were ready after a year of thinking about this matchup. The Bulls had beaten every team in the league that season except for Utah Jazz. Game one went to overtime, the Jazz won. Game two, the Bulls won. It was a close series except for game three in Chicago, where the Jazz were held to 54 points and were beaten by 42 points. Every teammate on the Chicago Bulls got to score in that game. The Bulls won by four points in game four, thanks to Dennis Rodman making two free throws at a crucial moment. And game five took place in Chicago and people were hoping for a big celebration, but it wasn't over yet for the Jazz and Carl Malone put up 39 points. It was a one point game with five seconds left. Then the Jazz were up by two with one second left. Michael Jordan had that one second and he put up a shot that didn't even touch the basket. So once again, like Michael Jordan does not make all the game winning shots he tries for, but he has complete confidence in himself to go for it. (laughs) Now in this last game, Scotty had been dealing with back pain since game three and he was really doing his best to overcome it. He went for a dunk really early in game six and felt it get so much worse. It's like if you're dealing with back pain and then you get a back block on the track. Oh my gosh, it's the worst. He was in so much pain. He left the game and went to the locker room and the team did their best to hold on without him. Scotty eventually came back as a decoy and Michael Jordan is taking all the shots, bringing all the energy he can with very little left in the tank, playing big minutes And then when Scotty did everything he could to contribute, when he could barely move, it went back and forth throughout. It's a really intense game. There's less than a minute to play, and the Bulls were down by three points. Phil set up a play to clear one side of the court to allow Michael Jordan to create a shot. Now it's 86-85. Jazz are still in the lead. As expected, the Jazz didn't call a timeout. And Michael Jordan knew what their next play would be based on observing the team and knew Carl Malone would have a blind side at one point, And he used that moment to sneak in where he couldn't be seen and stole the ball. He moved as if driving to the basket and then gave his opponent a little push, which sent him flying to the floor because he was committed really hard to the fake. And then Michael Jordan squared up and lofted a beautiful shot to win the game. Michael Jordan said about it, when I got that steal, the moment became the moment. Carl never saw me coming. I was able to knock the ball away. When Russell reached, I took advantage of the moment. I never doubted myself. It was a two-point game, a three-point game. We kept hanging close. When I looked up and got the ball, I saw 18.8 seconds left. I let the time clock tick until I saw the court the way I wanted it. John Stockton was over on Steve Kerr, so he couldn't gamble and come off. As soon as Russell reached, I saw a clear path. I knew we could hold for 5.2 seconds. 
Now, the flu game had been impressive. And even though his career did continue on later, this is the moment everyone thinks about as Michael Jordan's final bow. This beautiful moment of reading the opponent, reading the action, and putting up this shot. Some of the best basketball Michael Jordan ever played took place at the end of this game. His ability to read situations carried them through. He used a defender's movement pattern against him to get an advantage. Michael Jordan later said that 1998 was the best year because of how well he was able to use his mind as well as his body. His body was older and he had to be more cerebral to achieve. And they won their sixth championship. As an athlete, Michael Jordan always lived in the present moment. He didn't think about failure. And he would say, why would I think about missing a shot I hadn't taken yet? So this episode is long. I apologize. No, I'm not sorry. I think one of the amazing takeaways is just, it's this incredible story. And it's a story that not enough of us appreciated at the time. At the time, you want to root for somebody else to win. You're like, the Bulls have already won so many. I want another team to win. I remember rooting for the Pacers against the Bulls that season. And it's just one of those things where you you don't you don't realize how special it was until it's over. And I see that in roller derby too, as we have kind of these teams that have become dynasties that have succeeded over the course of several years. Gotham for so many years, now Rose City being the dominant team. And it's like we love that team for a while and then want so badly for someone else to come take it because we we want other people to have opportunities. But I think we should remember and respect just how hard it is to succeed at the highest levels, especially when you're dealing with different stuff every season. It's not as if you're hitting a copy paste and you have the same team in the same situation and you just go dominate because every year the roster is different. Every year there are injuries and transfers and things that change and like difficult situations that take place outside the team and how your team deals with those situations really says a lot about the character of your team. And uh, so whether it's the highest levels fighting for the Hydra or your local rivalries, I feel like there is respect to be had and memories to cherish and things to think about just going forward. Um, All this time off has just given us so much time to think and appreciate what we have had. And I just want to encourage that just just relishing what we have had already so far. It's that's all I'm going to say about that. If you're enjoying these types of episodes, please contact me and let me know. I would like to do more going forward. And that brings us to the end of this story. Uh, Before I go, I'd like to recommend a couple other podcasts I've been listening to. One was recommended to me by a listener. And it's called Black History Year. It's only six episodes, but I find it to be very valuable information. And the other I like a lot. It's called We're Having a Moment. And each episode 
just asks you to think about some certain situations in a crucial way. My favorite episode so far, I feel like it was episode four, uh, but it was about the headlines that we choose to use and the hashtags that we choose to use. And if we are actually using hashtags that are actionable or if they're not saying anything, it's a question of subject and object and verb in a sentence. And I, I don't want to go into it because I want you to listen to it. We're having a moment. I thought that that was super interesting because I've seen in the Derby community and everywhere, a lot of hashtags being used that mean almost nothing. And we could be saying something a lot more powerful with our headlines and our hashtags. And so it's just, I love things that expand your mind like that and really make you think about situations more clearly. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode. I hope you'll check out those other podcasts too. Thank you to all of the patrons on Patreon who have continued to support the podcast through these tough times. I appreciate you so much, especially our top tier patrons, Sheila Stryker, Bye Felicia, Stevie Kicks, Rachel White, Tara Wiebenson, and the training team at Charlotte Roller Derby. Thank you to Genergy, our transcriber, who makes all these episodes more accessible. They're available for free anytime you want on the Patreon page. And thank you to those of you who have sent me feedback from last week's episode and did social media shares about the podcast. Darth Spartacus, Stevie Kicks, Christine McKelvey, Susanna Danielle, Cheshire733 on Instagram, and Chris Schramm. Thank you so much for getting in touch. I really appreciate it. And thank you to our sponsors, Roller Derby Athletics and Bout Betty's. We have been talking about Derby and sharing Derby thoughts. Pew, pew! Thank you for listening to another episode of Power Through the Fourth Whistle Roller Derby Podcast. I really hope those laser beams of positivity will carry through your day. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on Facebook or on Instagram or Twitter at Power Fourth Whistle. That's P-O-W-E-R, the number four, T-H-W-H-I-S-T-L-E. You can find fun videos of On and Off Skates training at our YouTube channel, Facebook page, and Instagram. You could also support the podcast on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. The benefits of becoming a patron include fun stuff I can send you, like stickers, buttons, or shirts from our Threadless store. You can get access to our Discord server, bonus content, and free giveaways. Plus, patrons now have access to an ad-free version of the podcast that will download to your favorite podcast app each week, and everyone can access our transcribed episodes at patreon.com slash powerforthwhistle. If you like the content we provide and want to support us on this journey, please consider becoming a patron. If you want to expand your derby wardrobe, of course, another way to support the podcast is visiting our store at powerforthwhistle.threadless.com, where you can get our designs on just about any type of apparel or accessory you can dream up. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast anywhere you can. Leaving reviews is still the best way to help this podcast be found and spread those laser beams of positivity to more humans. Plus, it's a way you can give back that is completely free. 
open up your Apple Podcast app, punch those stars, and leave me a pew pew!